Welcome to the Leading Life Science Radio Podcast. I'm your host, Damian Wilpitz. I'm a life science research manager and consultant. I'm here to help scientists and to help those who are managing to help science be successful. In this radio podcast, we'll explore current strategies and practices taken by some of the most respected life science leaders of today. We'll be hosting guests who lead independent or academic research labs, startup pharmaceuticals and biotech entrepreneurs, and other operational support leaders, VPs, chief operating officers, managers, and the like. We'll explore some of the following lessons, what steps they've taken to reach their current scientific goals, what unexpected challenges they faced along the way, and what tools and skills that have been critical to their success. We'll listen to what advice they would give to those who are willing to follow them and to pursue a career in leading life sciences. Again, thank you for joining and welcome to the Leading Life Science Radio Podcast. Hello everyone, this is episode number seven. This is a special episode that features yours truly, me, the host with the most. Or at least I'm trying to aspire to be one. I'm someone who's passionate about science, but not necessarily passionate about myself. However, I want you to get to know who I am. The only way that I knew how to do that was to rebroadcast an interview that was done about a few months ago from another podcast with a dear friend of mine. Derek Loudermilk is a scientist himself who also is a self-made entrepreneur and adventurer. He has his own radio podcast where he features other adventurers. He brought me onto his show and basically interviewed me about my passionate pursuits to help others in the life sciences. I feel that this was a great way to really talk about myself without really promoting myself. I figured that this interview authentically captured me and hopefully that you can learn about my pursuits to help manage the practice of science. Well, we may be familiar with my show, but let's listen into my journey to help others in the life sciences to be successful. So let's listen in. super excited for this episode today. My guest is Damien Wilpitz, the founder and lead consultant of Experimental Designs Consulting. He basically helps scientists run their lab more efficiency, producing better data, more data, and save money. Science funding in the U.S. amounts to about $37 billion annually, and almost none of these researchers have business training. So that's where he comes in. As you may know, science is a big passion of mine, coming from a master's degree in microbiology this year, and Damien is the perfect guy to have on this show to tell us more about the overlap of basic scientific research and entrepreneurship, and he'll talk a little bit about how to do pilot experiments in your life, the power of stories, and he's really just an all-around entertaining guest. So enjoy this episode. For information to be really, truly communicated, it has to be kind of put into a pill or something like like a Flintstones vitamin, if you will. I mean, it's got to be laced with something palpable, something tasty, something sweet. And the way to do that, especially gobs amounts of data, it has to be in, uh, included within something that people can easily digest. And stories are that like vitamins, are those Flintstone vitamins, if you will. Welcome back to the Art of Adventure podcast. I'm here today with my friend, Damien Wilpitz. Thanks for joining us today, Damien. Thank you so very much for having me, Derek. Such a pleasure. Yes, I'm, I'm really excited about this interview because you and I both have similar life trajectories in a sense in that we're both former scientists who found out we were a little more social and felt like we could add more to science and to the world uh, in ways that aren't necessarily behind the bench, doing um, 
basic research. Is would you say that's accurate for you? Absolutely. Um, I think I told you a little bit the uh, last time we spoke is the fact that I felt as though I was a little bit too ADD, ADHD for the sciences, where it kind of requires a hyper focus towards one very uh, particular section um, of the work. Uh, however, my general passion has always still been science. And I felt that more of my skill sets were better left to the business side, which has a tendency to be a little bit more on the social aspects of it. And I've been here ever since. Cool. And here is you're the founder and lead consultant of Experimental Designs Consulting. And well, first, maybe you could just tell the audience what your science background is. Yes, so I originally started as a biochemist slash molecular biologist, particularly a lot more of the technical side of things. So I was really good at the bench. However, over time, I learned more of the management side of things. And so I was a lab manager for a number of years, basically running a lot of the business side of, uh, of an academic research lab. I spent a stint in the pharmaceutical industry for a number of years, learning a lot more of the uh, actual financial side of things. And that actually boomeranged me back into academic settings because while I really loved how things were organized in the pharmaceutical industry, the trajectory was much more for things that I wasn't really uh, passionate about, which was profit margins and uh, returns to market and these are the things that like it was just much more for financial returns which wasn't really that interesting to me however I was much more interested in the discovery process and so I just knew that the discovery process was fraught with a lot of disorganizations and if anybody really knows me I'm actually if anybody really knows me I'm pretty OCD with how things run. Gotcha. And so I think everything has its appropriate place and needs to be organized in a way to create much more flow. And that's when I started uh, learning how to run uh, research labs, independent research labs, a lot more efficiently and effectively, which actually decreased a lot of the anxi uh, anxieties of most researchers and scientists, especially in the independent academic setting. And that's when I started uh, forming about, say, about six years ago, five years ago, I started forming uh, Experimental Designs Consulting, which basically helps academic independent researchers formulate and run the business side of an academic lab. And so, because at the end of the day, that's what a uh, lab is, is in essence a, a business. Yeah, and it's it seems that from from my uh, impression of of the labs that I've been around, that the people that are successful benchtop scientists, they are are really good technically, and then they become professors, and then they have to start running this business, applying for grants, and you know, in a sense, hiring grad students, and you know, just making sure that the money that they get equals output in terms of discoveries and papers and, and stuff like that. And so it's a totally new skill set that they haven't spent the last 12 years training for. Is that is that what you noticed as well? Oh, God, yeah, absolutely. So what a lot of people don't realize, actually what a lot of research and scientists don't realize is that most independent investigators um, or lead, uh, lead researcher or lead scientists when they run their own independent practice, that like anywhere between 65 to 70% of their time is, will be dedicated to running the business side of things. That business being managing people, personnel, hiring, firing, feedbacks, all these kinds of things. And then also is the financial aspect is writing grants, budgeting, bookkeeping, keeping track of the fundings, making financial decisions, grant writing, tons and tons of grant writing. And then even the presentations do, going up and giving another talk, another talk, networking, and then marketing, marketing. So 
Yeah, that's what uh, the big part of running a research practice is, is the business side of it. While you basically hire your old self to run the technical side of things <laughs> and looking. <laughs> yes. And so that's kind of that's kind of the uh, the irony of it all. Yeah, you know, and I feel like a lot of these lead investigators, they think maybe, oh, I, I would really like to just be back in the lab and have, you know, maybe maybe some of them do hire ad- administrative personnel or something like that. Um, but it's, you know, you, you said some of them don't realize that 75% of their time is going to be doing this. And I don't think anyone ever told me when I, when I started grad school that, you know, if you are thinking about becoming a professor, you know, if you're going to get a PhD and go into academia, this is what to expect. And I don't think there's really any, anyone out there saying that or, or telling people about that really. No, not at all. Because the, your whole time is, is spent learning and teaching and training the science. I mean, that's the whole point of, of, undergraduate and graduate and postdoctoral training is to learn the science, which is a very, very difficult field. But you know what also is difficult? Business. (laughs) (laughs) And a lot of like scientists are thrown into uh, running their own independent practice without any kind of real practical business training. However, institutes are starting to realize this and they're offering uh, training type of sessions, but they're not really like really emphasizing and training this aspect of within researchers. Now, the un, the other flip side of this is most scientists then end up going to industry or pharmaceuticals or biotechs where business is really taught. And so some of the more core CEOs have good business acumens and they lead these big, huge teams. But it's all about the financial measurements. In academics or nonprofit organizations, it's not a return on those investments. It's actually discovery. And the, the unique aspect of that discovery process is that it's going to, like 90% of your experiments are going to be failed, failures. I mean, we see this all the time. I mean, as a scientist, everybody, you, how many times have you done an experiment? You just went into, you're like, I don't know, we'll see how it goes. You kind of expect it to fail, right? Sure. Like yeah, because you're like, oh, yeah. well, let's see. You know, because this maybe it'll help you make a decision whether or not to keep going down one path or another. And sort yeah, of absolutely. For you. Yeah. Yeah, and I think the the next uh, the next other types of industry that actually kind of mocks and mimics this is entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurs actually jump into a lot of ventures with, without really knowing exactly what to expect. And you've got to have that kind of like um, brazen kind of let's, let's just give it a try, see how, what works. And which each step, it, it, it gives you a little bit of a knowledge and it kind of like lets you know what's the next step to do. Where in some um, more of your straightforward business practices you have a clear trajectory clear goals it's financial markers but in in science especially biological sciences there's so many variables that you just don't know you're like i don't know if this is going to work there's no uh, possibility that there's actually going to be a a unique drug discovery and then in biology especially basic research when you're looking at some uh, c elegans which uh, is a basically a uh, an earthworm if you will and you're trying to look at some specific types of genes and then relate it to humans, which is several folds uh, removed in species. And you're like, oh, this is going to be a unique finding. And then how do you explain that to the general public on top of that? How do you explain that to the business professionals trying to invest in your ideas that this may not come to fruition from 10, 15, 20, 30 years from now? No, they want something now. Which is kind of crazy. So basic science then takes it. Yeah. And... And which, yeah. which lets me, leads me to think about sort of a fundamental issue when it comes to funding basic research in the States. And I think, you know, a lot of our research is funded through NSF, which is part of the, the government, and or um, NIH. And mm-hmm. we're basically sort of 
placing a lot of bets on on researchers and saying i don't know i guess it's i guess it's kind of like um invest investing in startups and stuff like that you you know that some of the investments some of the research will not really pan out to be i don't know quote useful for society some mm-hmm. of the research will be moderately useful and some will be like huge home runs like einstein's theory of relativity or the human genome or DNA or something like that. And it's great, but you sort of have to invest equally across all disciplines and all areas of research because you never know which one is going to be the winner in 30 or 50 years. Absolutely. And I think what we're going back to the startups, I think there's a lot of effort going into support of these startups in being able to create environments for which they will become um, productive. And I think that productivity relies on their ability for exploration, if you will. It's no different than children growing up. Children need to be able to explore their environment, take risks, be able to um, take on a challenge and then abandon it, and then to take on another challenge and then abandon it. And this is how most of startups go through. You'll have iterations on top of reiterations to basically explore some unique actual talents and be able to fundamentally come up with good products and ideas that actually will inevitably benefit the whole um, population and general public. But within the research side of, um, of the business or biomedical or sciences researches, and this is all funded great by the NSF or the National Science Foundations or NIH or the National Institute of Health. And these are all government funds. But the, the unfortunate aspect is that the environments for which it is, uh, that is created for them, it's a very kind of like, um, how should I say, it's kind of like a, it's just a, it's just some like useless resources that people can really adhere to. And so it's kind of like, here's just a pot of money, good luck, and let us know what you come up with. But it's kind of like giving um, a 10-year-old, a 5-year-old, here's a bunch of money, good luck. That kid is Sink going to buy as much candy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he, that kid is going to buy as much candy as he wants. But it, it requires a... a uh, training from an adult or supervisor to like, listen, yes, you can buy this candy, but is this necessarily the candy that you really was going to uh, get you to the next level? And there are what's called uh, in uh, there are incubators within the startup industry within in in business where they have these unique um, startups or venture capitalists and or uh, angel funding now is that they're creating little incubators or startups or like giving them mentors and teachers, showing them how to manage their funds, how to actually make quick, uh, unique decisions, how to actually like move to the next level and teaching them some of the actual business fundamentals, which is critical and crucial to bringing these unique products or their quote unquote talents or discoveries to the, uh, to the market. However, this doesn't necessarily exist in an uh, independent academic research where biotechs are kind of uh, getting a lot of this because they're but but big part of it is that they're being measured within uh, they're being measured on the financial returns. And again, in the sciences, it's it's kind of like, oh, it's just for the knowledge. You're like, oh, what's the knowledge going to buy me? (laughs) (laughs) That's a good question. Yeah, they're like, yeah, it's to better the humankind. Well, is it going to give me a cool new DVD set? I don't know. And so, I mean, like, so how do you sell that to the to the general public? You're like, it's for the knowledge. You're like, well, it's not going to buy me a new big screen TV. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, I struggled with that myself, you know. I was doing research in Yellowstone and part of the the question I was asking myself is like, this is really fun when I'm out here. Um, but 
who even knows that I'm doing this work? And even if I discover this new species, everyone asks me like, oh, will it kill me like Ebola? And, you know, their main concern is, is for their own health and how it's going to benefit them. And of course, everyone wants to know how is what you're doing going to benefit me or society or whatever. And I think, yeah, sometimes it's hard to know or hard to make an argument beyond sort of just the general for the knowledge. Yeah, and I know, uh, especially with basic research, is that it's got to be harder for like basic scientists, basic research scientists, to make that um, that sell that that long term jump to explain their societal impacts on their work. And so, like for the NIH, they're starting to look to fund much more translation, what's called translational research. It's called we call it the bench to bedside work. So they're working on real, uh, real world drug developments for cancer, uh, leukemia, or Alzheimer's. All these real world things that are um, uh, impacting the health of individuals. But what a lot of people don't realize is the basic scientists, researchers, they create the foundation and fundamentals to which this translational research is actually uh, needed. And so, like, we can't study some of these uh, gene regulational work in in humans or even in in a, uh, small small little animals unless you have it like fundamentally teased out within what's called like smaller subspecies and bacteria, you know, like, or in yeast, or in in C. elegans, yeah, like these little worms, and so. People were like, oh, how is a little earthworm going to help me? <laughs> and so it, it's, it becomes such a huge nebulous type of explanation to make those clear jumps. But the, the business side of things can actually facilitate these, these processes. And so learning and teaching them how to sell their ideas, how to market their, or their ideas. And I think... Um, National Geographics or Discovery, they've done a very excellent job at actually selling a lot of these ideas where I don't think that they're, say, quote unquote, dumbing it down, but per se, they're just like really uniquely telling the scientific story. They're coming up with really good ways of being able to explore these ideas. And we even do it within, we even do it in the popular media with looking at, um, the NASA does an amazing job at this. Uh, we doing sure, great yeah. explore, uh, space exploration, and that is almost much more for like, isn't this just cool? They're like, well, what's some water gonna be uh, help me out down here? What's some water in Mars gonna help me down here on the Earth? Yeah, NASA. But yet, NASA's like, yeah. uh, Trump card is like, we're NASA, we're so cool, and you're like, okay, that's you know. Okay, just go make some more spaceships, you know, like, just go be cool. <laughs> and that's one of the things that I actually uh, admit is really, quote unquote, cool of them is that they are actually looking at NASA branding as this cool factor. They're writing this idea that, oh, their astronauts are like uh, superheroes and look at Neil deGrasse Tyson talking about the, the cosmos and like how, look at these fascinations where I think in biology or even in basic research and even geology, I don't think we do enough of that, selling the unique storyline of the quote-unquote cool factor of things. Um, and I know... I used to live in LA for a number of years, and especially when I was working, uh, doing some um, more research at UCLA, is that I lived right next to Hollywood. Mm -hmm. So most of my work was in, done in genetic research and understanding uh, uh, genetic mutations and how it affects certain disease profiles and this nature and how like diabetes and obesity come, uh, come to foreplay. But all my friends that were in the Hollywood entertainment industry, they just wanted to know, like, oh, I heard about mutations, so DNA mutations. So can I really have psychic powers or can I really be like Wolverine? Yes. <laughs> Everything I know about science I learned from the X-Men. <laughs> yeah. And so 
while I never want to discourage the that belief in that, like it's enough for them to like really come up to me and ask me. Whether it's true or false, that's aside the point. The point is the fact that they were interested and they're exploring more about the science because they're I could have easily told them point blank, nope, that's false. There's no way. Nope. Yeah. But what would that have accomplished? They would have moved on and did something else. They would never have asked any more questions about it. And I think we as scientists are so quick to like give straight answers and say, nope, that's absolutely false. And then it's kind of like we make the general public like, oh, it's just another useless fact. Mm, yeah. But I think if we, I think if we encompass it within a story plot, or in we enhance the cool side of things, like oh yes, uh, or what's called in in storytelling or in in the in screenwriting, I think it is in science in movies they call it the suspension of uh, belief. Ah. If we if we enable the suspensions of belief and where that young kid could be like really enthralled, like, Oh, cool. So how does a mutation happen? What is it about these mutations that actually develop? And so these are some of these cool things that like can be dissipated within the general public. And I think they will be more supportive of the science and endeavors and research that is actually going on. But I don't think we're, we're taught enough of this in the sciences. Well, so do you remember Jurassic Park, the movie? Yeah. Or the book? <laughs> what, what, you know, what kid did it? <laughs> and yeah, I was a kid, and things that were happening in that movie were uh, gene splicing and all kinds of basically, we're going to take this plausible scientific research and take it to its logical extreme suspension of belief outcome and boom we have this awesome story and i was like i'm gonna do that i'm gonna get some dinosaurs and i'm gonna you know play with them <laughs> oh my god yes you know what it's on uh, that to piggyback on that uh that experience so at usc no was it usc or no it was like i think it's los angeles science museum they actually had a museum and it was called uh the science of superheroes and so you think about it, you're like, oh, oh my God, what are they talking about? <laughs> but like so many kids, I, I walked into this place and they had the, um, the sign, the science of, of superheroes. And then they show like Kapow and then they show like Iron Man and Superman and the Incredible Hulk. And you're like, oh, okay. but there were so many kids there that were just running around and playing with all the engaging all the engaging uh, displays, and then they were they had self interaction um, uh, things about sciences behind it. Like they talk about Iron Man and his suit, mm-hmm. and so they talked about an exoskeleton, and they talked about how an exoskeleton works. And then they were showing some uh, designs within the in uh, that was designed by a DARPA, and how it was talked about. It was enabling enabling soldiers to carry really heavy objects with this, the use of these hydraulics around their uh, exoframe. Yeah. And it was just all these kids. And then they, sh- they had a display that these kids were actually riding on. And then they were sh- showing them how they could lift up a car from this. And the kids were like just loving it. And then they made a jump into biology and talking about actual uh, um, the crustaceans and even in the insect world how they have an exoskeleton. And how like an ant can carry like eight times its body weight because of its exoskeleton. And so these are unique. Yes. And this they talked about the science behind that. And it shows you you're like, oh, yeah, you talk. If, and all, we all know that Iron Man does, doesn't exist. There's no way that can actually happen. You sit there and like Iron Man can sit there and lift all these things. It just, yeah, we all know that. But the suspension of belief we can then explore and fantasize about it. And so therefore you, you have this unique kid that says, this is cool. And I want to become an engineer. I want to become a particle physicist. I want to become uh, a biologist. And I think because, uh, because of these miscommunications within, uh, between the sciences and business world, I don't think we explore enough of this. 
And I think this is where science is uh, really, really hurting in nowadays, and especially, and it's starting to show within the support because over the past 10, 20 years, this, um, the governmental funding uh, towards the sciences has decreased by like almost, almost 12% through NIH and NSF. And more and more research and scientists are, are leaving the sciences because they know, can no longer support their, their ventures. On top of it, the, the complexity of sciences is getting even more difficult to understand. So therefore, we're going, going through a brain drain. There's not enough scientists coming into the field that actually are supporting this work or at least enough to like understand how to support it. On top of that, there's, there's not the resources. So this is where it's kind of like disheartening. And I think this is where I'm trying to position myself in, in trying to like help uh, the unsung heroes, if you will, the the Derek Laudermilks out there, <laughs> former former Derek Laudermilks. So so yeah, say you're a kid and you think I'm going to be an engineer or a scientist. Dot dot dot. Fast forward twenty years, and you are now a PhD with your first lab, and you're thinking, what do I do? And then they call you, Damien. I need some help. And you say, okay, this is what you're going to do. And you, so what does that look like? What is your consulting practice? I mean, you talked about a little bit of the, of the managing the, the flow and the efficiency of the lab. And you talked a little bit about the communicating the stories behind people's research. Is it, is it the communication? Absolutely. And the then it becomes. Research? Well, actually, then it becomes just more on the simplicity side of things for me because it just becomes the business side. The business is the management, coming up with processes, systems, repeatable, measurable, measurable uh, objectives, and then to really encompass it in a way that a scientist can understand, read it, and carry it out. What that basically means is you have uh, Joe Blow, re, uh, doctor, scientist, that would come up and say, hey, I have one, two, three specific aims or theories that I want to prove. I just got awarded from a, from a prestigious uh, academic institution, and they really like my ideas. And so this is my dollar amount that I'm starting up. How can I do this? And so this is where we come in and say, all right, we take their, uh, their ideas, map it out, just kind of like throw it down on a map, and basically like what are the specific objectives, what are the key main, say, uh, discovery uh, points that they're trying to make, if they're actually looking to discover a new gene, or if they're looking to discover a new, um, a new drug pathway, what is, whatever it could be, it just, that doesn't really matter. What really matters is that we outline how long it'll take and what are the tangible things that they need to come up with. Mm. Those tangible things are what if they're needing to design a new enzyme or what if they need to, um, uh, what if they need to build a new, uh, uh, how should I say, gene or a clone gene. Sure. I'm trying to talk about it in a way that your your general public will understand is kind of like like a a unique genetically engineered mouse a mighty mouse if you will yep and so if you actually then think about these genes that affect within this animal and you can basically mimic that with uh, a new disease say if this mouse is actually has the same type of like cancer that this other cancer patient can come up with and so we need to be able to ans ask a few questions these questions can be what are the types of drugs we can put on this uh, in this mouse to cure the cancer in this mouse how can we actually look at the different types of genes that are affected in this mouse if we uh, treat it this way and then once those are identified we actually have to identify the processes what are the experiments that we need to do? What are the equipment that we need to carry out those experiments? What are the skill sets needed to know how to carry out those uh, experiments needed? And then what are the cons uh, what are the day in day out like consumable things that you need to do? Um, 
you're a biologist, you know, you need like little pipettes and things and centrifugations, all these different types of things, these reagents and medias and solutions and buffers. Yeah. What do you need of that? How, yeah, yeah. What is it that you need to do to create this data? And so, you know, you need to understand like how much data do you need to produce? How much uh, will it uh, cost? How much will we require? How much can I waste? How much can I, can I not waste? And so, <laughs> and then I basically reverse engineer all of that. And so once you have... And so we, then we basically map it out. Once you have the figure for how much reagents to waste, you probably order those reagents and pour them down the drain so that you get that out of the way. And then you can move on to the important, uh, <laughs> the important part where you're using the reagents. <laughs> Yeah, right. No, I'm, no, I'm so, or actually, like, okay, this is going to be the waste, and so let's put that in a bank instead of, like, dumping it down the drain. <laughs> um, but, I think it's, but I think it's inherent, like, in an, a VC person, they would have a unique prof, uh, portfolio that they automatically assume that their ventures or what they're going to invest in will not return anything. Say, like, one out of ten that will actually come to fruition and hopefully like make up for those nine that were nine losses and so the same thing in sciences is that we call what's called uh, pilot experiments so these pilot experiments are just in the business world they call it minimal viable product just enough to like go to market to test it out to see how the market responds to it we do the same thing in science we do just an ask small enough questions to get enough feedback to understand if this is something that we can scale up and carry out to actually ask bigger larger questions it helps us to understand our environment to be able to explore it and then come up with good enough uh, reliable data and then and then move on to the next questions or branch off or expand or ex- explore this uh, unique question. And I think this is all built in the financial side of things for with EDC works on is like we actually do this analysis and try to figure out exactly what it's going to cost, what it'll cost an institution, where are you going with this. And, and then in basically you can understand exactly what you need, what resources you'll need. And then move from that, even like to the recruitment. And then when it comes down to recruitment, we are actually looking for unique skill sets and people that work in really highly intellectual but highly uh, emotionally uh, intelligent people. Enough that they can understand their own emotional maturity enough to like uh, understand that these these ex- space or these scientific explorations is very difficult. It's very stressful. It's very intense, and so how to have a little bit of uh, fortitude to be able to carry it out from there. And so yeah. this is what EDC helps, and we actually kind of like help to explore all, uh, all, of, these, all of these aspects. That sounds, that sounds perfect, and I think I would, I would recommend it. Sure, obviously, you know, the way you explain it to, to any new lab, but I want to ask you whether it's, hard to convince a a new investigator who has i don't know x number of dollars to come in before they've even discovered really something or they're just getting rolling to hire you and spend money on you and something is it an easy sell or is it a hard sell for you um uh yes and no I'll say yes and no for the reason because it's maybe in the past uh, year or so, and I, I don't know if the audience knows that, like we've known each other for the past year through this marketing side of things. And I actually been learning a lot of, uh, about the marketing as well. And it's what I actually like to call is just this gravitational marketing or gravitational pull. So in a nonprofit organization, they're really used to working on a shoestring budget. And so they usually assume that they're going to have to figure things out themselves. Mm-hmm. So they usually stay away from uh, for-profit institutions or for-profit types of uh, ways. And they're very, just as scientists by nature has a tendency to be, we understand we're just kind of skeptical. Sure. <laughs> <with> everything. <laughs> and that's understandably so. So one of the unique 
aspects of any business is proof is in the pudding. So this is when I start to work with uh, individuals and we uh, create unique uh, relationships with them and give them instant results where, for example, I was working with one investigator. We actually were creating a budget together and to work together initially was, was she was like, oh, I don't know if I'm going, I really want to do this. This is, this is kind of scary. And of course this is going to be scary. They don't really know me well enough to know if, Hey, is this guy just trying to take me or is it, uh, is he really trying to help? Mm-hmm. But one thing that has helped me is my one, my reputation, but two is just giving them an instant win. We call it the um, we call it that that hooker, that one, and they're like, "Listen, I clearly am trying to help you out with it's a very low cost to you to work on one small aspect, and so we work with budgets. This is a, it's a huge, huge thing for for them is to create a budget. How to actually create a budget? For us, it's easy. We do it all the time. But for them, they've never done it before. But if you create a budget for them that they can really, truly see the savings, they can see where their actual money is going, they can see their stress levels going down, and it creates the instant like emotional bond. And that bond then becomes that, that trust that that's, we all savor. And so this is when I actually have built the trust within them to like then carry them to the next level. And is coming up with uh, the operational side, putting the management into it, like recruitment, showing them how to put it all together. And then I work with them for uh, a long time after that for, for multiple months until they're actually so much more settled that they can run the show themselves. And so that then just becomes a, a set point for testim- testimonials. And I think we always love... Uh, we always love testimonials because you can say how great you are, but like, <laughs> right, I, I, that's awesome. But if Joe there says how awesome you are, you're like, oh, you're going to believe Joe more than you. Exactly. And then if you have many more Joes and Janes out there, you're like, oh, you know, there's a lot of them. But what's even more telling? What's even more telling than that is, is somebody that actually you know. And this is one of the reasons why I work within an academics institution. And this is one of the reasons, because it's such a tight niche community. Because then it's like one of their own. Like, gotcha. listen, you, you, you've been in the trenches with us. You know what it feels like. You know that stress and anxiety. And that is even much more. And so if somebody says, hey, listen, he's one of us, that is probably the best type of marketing in itself. And at the end of the day, again, it's proof in the pudding. Uh, I don't uh, charge. If they're not successful in securing a funding or securing uh, an actual position, they don't have to pay me a dime because their success is my success. Right. So that's interesting. So it sounds like you even start helping some investigators before they get their initial funding or startup money or whatever. Oh, absolutely. I, Jesus, yeah, I completely bombard postdoctoral, uh, senior postdoc scientists, the ones that are actually exploring the actual, uh, their actual positions. So I go and give seminars, I give talks, I, uh, I teach and show exactly like how to create a budget, how to hire somebody. We actually, uh, I, we hold, we hold these like free uh, seminars for them and show them like kind of step by step. And if they're in, if they're interested in working or actually interested in carrying on to the next uh, phase, they can, we ha- we have much more in depth uh, talks and conversations around it. Gotcha, gotcha. So beyond your attention to detail and the fact that you have been in the trenches, you were scientist, you were in academia. What are the unique skills required for you to be successful? as a consultant? Uh, unique skills as a consultant. Um, a science consultant, yeah. So I think the, probably the number one is, I call it the 80-20 split. Just I listen more than I talk. And so how that really, like I know that's kind of abstract, but like to describe is I listen exactly carefully what 
their stresses, anxieties are, and also what are the action steps? What are the steps to actually move them to the next level? So I can have unique conversations with most researchers and scientists because most um, uh, I've just been doing it as a research lab manager for so many years is that as a manager, you're just listening to a lot of complaints. Like 90% of them are just like <laughs> vent, venting. It's just somebody has an emotional stressor. And it doesn't necessarily have to do with what they're complaining about. But if I can actually piece things together and know exactly what are the actual uh, causative effects, and then basically like uh, remove those unique obstacles or actually help them overcome those obstacles, it really dis, uh, disengages their uh, emotional um, anxieties from it. Mm. So what, for example, so for example, we, we had one researcher that was just really like anxious about wanting to get rid of one of the uh, one of their candidate, uh, one of their the research science uh, technicians, and she was just like super stressed about it. I don't know. I just want to get rid of get rid of her. And as I started listening to a lot of the the texts and then the people around him, I started realizing there was a little bit of a trend here. There was a lot more of anxiety. This person, there was some, some miscommunications, and when it came down when it came down to it, that they weren't communicating. Hmm. They, they were ha- holding their meetings maybe once a month, but their meetings were being held over email. <laughs> oh, interesting. Yeah. And so, and when they did meet, they would meet briefly and sporadically. And so there was never any clarity. There was never any clarity in this text's uh, mind. So she was just guessing at what, it, uh, what the the leads, uh, lead scientist or the principal investigator was uh, stressing about. Hmm. And so when we worked it out, we were like, all right, listen, I know you want to be able to get rid of this person, but this, first of all, there's like little HR steps to take. So let's try this. <laughs> let's give you six weeks. That's uh, good enough to get enough data where you meet with this person once a week, face to face on a regular basis. <laughs> no less than 30 minutes on a consistent basis. We write down all verbs. What do you do? What do you not do? And then you give feedback of what, they're, uh, what they need to do or what they're not completing. And it was remarkable. Remarkable. What do you think happened? I think that they turned it around and the, the person stayed in the lab. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because the reason is that it, cr- it created a lot less anxiety. This person, the, the investigator came to me and was asking how to let somebody go, how to fire somebody. They wanted to fire this person. This person wasn't working. They wanted me to, to like help them search for a new person. That wasn't the solution. Mm. <laughs> yeah. If I, if I just completely just jumped into it and I, uh, I'm like, all right, just... That's all. We're going to find some uh, new person. Let me start screening a ton of applicants. But as I listened, I asked a lot of questions. We asked, you know, what are some of the things that they're, uh, they're not doing? What are some of the things they aren't doing? What are some of the things that they're currently like, uh, stressing about? And then I, I talked to the main uh, team, talked about exactly what they were stressing about, what are the things that they didn't need. And I just took it back and then started uh, compilating. And then it becomes extremely, really clear as to what steps you need to take if you actually just listen. That's a really cool and story. Trust me, it took. Yeah, and, and I know I used to get a lot from people like, oh, it's kind of pointless to complain to you, Damien, because you give us like this kind of like inquisitive, almost blank stare. And yeah, <laughs> I'm sure you're sympathetic, but it doesn't make us, it makes us feel like we're crazy at the time, and, but we understand. <laughs> and it's it's true because you're just you're just kind of like stressed. You're it's it's a stressful situation, and I think sometimes uh, having that little bit of support really can uh, helps uh, help somebody. Right? Yeah, that's that's really illuminating, and it's an interesting story because I it's not 
one that I would have just by reading the title of your company and what you do, Experimental Designs Consulting, I wouldn't have made the jump to Damien listens to what scientists are stressed about and helps them fix it. That's like the next level beyond what I was assuming. So good work. <laughs> you know, you know, it's so funny that you, uh, you said that like experimental designs consulting was a name that came up a while ago and I was trying so hard to figure out what's the name that resonates. I was going to say just lab management consulting. I'm like, oh, one, that's kind of boring. Not to mention two, it's, it's somebody who really has that. <laughs> so it didn't, but as I started like exploring things and understanding like the the uniqueness of things, it, it it just actually ended up becoming like an experimental design, right? And so you ask a bunch of unique questions and then you come up with the experiment and you start designing it around those unique questions. And that's exactly what an experimental design is. It's unique, uh, unique sets of uh, experiments to actually answer these questions. And then my tagline became to like, actually, actually got a lot of that from Simon, uh, Simon Sinek. So I don't know if you're followers or if you know who Simon Sinek is, but like he really helped. Start with my, yes, exactly. Yep. Hone my, uh, hone my, my core, core philosophy within my, my business is you have to like really narrow down exactly what you're passionate about, what your belief system is, and then like what do you actually do to around that. And when it came down to it, I was like, well, science had to be in there somewhere because that's what I really love. And what do I do? What do I do? I just like I manage it. I mean, basically, like I optimize it, I manage it, I regulate it, if you will. And for why? Why? For what reason do you do this for science? Okay, I'm trying to, ah, trying to make science easier. That's what I'm trying to do. And so this is where we came up with managing to make science easier. Mm. And so cool. that's and it really helps to explore all the different types of skill sets that we can use to apply towards it. Whether it be marketing, whether it be uh, psychology, whether it be uh, recruitment, whether it be budgeting, financial. And so there's a, a ton of different types of approaches to actually make science a lot easier to manage. And each independent lab is unique as their exploratory questions. And so we always have to take a unique uh, perspective when we start with the principal investigator and their their core sciences and philosophy and how and their vision and then we kind of build around that and I think it's not going to be a cookie cutter uh, process and so we we take that kind of like seriously yeah absolutely so yeah um, you and I talked a little bit earlier maybe the last time we we talked about um, you know pilot experiments but in your own life and I don't know if you'd be willing to touch on how you apply the things that you're teaching all these scientists to how you're also maybe doing little experiments in your own life. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, I constantly am doing uh, Actually, I, I didn't realize that till I looked up, I don't know if you guys know, is uh, BJ Fogg. Yeah, he's a, was a Stanford psychologist. Yeah, Stanford psychologist, and he kind of talks about this, these little experiments. And so he does his own little experiments. And like, you know what? Let me just try this. And so he does one thing, just, just do it again, and then again, and then again, and then again, and then again. And then until he gets enough data points to understand exactly like where, uh, where he's at with certain things. And I know I do this within my own life, too, is like... Uh, what was it? One thing that I started uh, having issues with. Oh, I started having uh, issues with remembering things. So I'm like, uh, like there was so much that I have to like remember throughout the day. And I'm like, oh God, how am I going to remember all of these things? So I actually then took two steps. One was the first little pilot experiment. And like I was just going through, there's all these unique tools that you can use. 
is one is like I stuck to Evernote. So mm-hmm. I just need to capture an idea. It was super easy for me. Just capture it. Comes up an idea, capture it. Write it quickly down, whether it's on my laptop, whether it's on my iPhone, whether it's on my uh, anything. Even on, like, on a shot of it on a piece of paper, I'll take a picture of it and, just, and it goes into this little box of an idea. And I kept doing it, kept doing it. And so, yeah, it was capturing those ideas and pulled it out. And that actually helped me a lot because I was a lot less uh, stressed about it because I would be like, before I used to like, oh my God, I can't remember. I won't be able to remember all of these things. And then I was thinking, all right, so now I know I captured it, but I have to retrieve it. So instead of going back into my, my Evernote and looking up, looking up, looking up, I'm like, Jesus, where is this stuff? So, and then I started like doing these little tags on it. I'm like, oh, this is so uh, much because maybe 80% of those ideas I would never really need. But there's always a core uh, part of it that I needed to, uh, needed to understand. Yeah. But the memory, the mind is amazing. I freaking love science in the brain. It's <laughs> amazing because one of the things is that uh, if we do to recall the uh, recall information is actually practicing it and so in a very consistent manner so it's not so much the first the first few times you do it you just have to do it instantly right you kind of write your notes and you kind of write it you uh, you you have your ideas you write it out that creates much more of a solid connection to it but then you, how do you retrieve it how do you understand it and put it into context hmm. and so one of the things that i learned was once you're, because that actually puts a lot of cogn- uh, cognitive load. You just meaning it just it tires you out. You're just trying to remember everything. But then on a fresh brain, you really can start to hone in. I call it the defragmentation part of the brain. You know, when you if you have a Windows operating system, you know yeah. defrag yeah. defragment. You kind of like, oh, it's working a lot faster. And so this is what I end up starting doing is I'm like defragmenting the brain, and it's always. When I am, when I just wake up. So what I do every morning, it was like clockwork. Is I I have to go shower. I, this is the only way I get my day going is with a shower every day. Okay. My clockwork. So I jump into the shower, but that I'm in the shower for five ten minutes. I don't know, but that during that time, I recap the what did I learn the day before. Hmm. And how can I apply it towards the future? So I do it in that manner. What did I learn the day before? And how can I apply it to the future? And like, so, for example, one of the things I was learning about yesterday was like emotional intelligence. We talked about this thing uh, during this leadership training. This is emotional intelligence. And I was reading up some of these articles. And so I'm like, all right, this morning, like just this morning, I was thinking, all right, what I learned was this. This is what I need to do during this part of an interaction with, with one of my directs. How do I lead appropriately? All right, these are the trigger moments that I feel. So, all right, I actually have a scenario with two employees. All right, how am I going to talk with them? This is a very difficult conversation. So these are the emotional triggers I feel. So this is what I will rehearse. Hmm. But even now, it's already late at night. I now remember that. I remember what I did. I learned yesterday. And I now know what I actually am going to do the next time this situation happens. So therefore, when I'm actually in that situation, I'm not thinking, come on, what was that? What was that? I can't go back to my Evernote. I'm sorry. Hold on a second here. Let me look at this up on how to deal with this situation. <laughs> you got it like written on your palm. You're like looking down in your lap at your... Yeah, your cheat sheet. <laughs> exactly. And so this is one of those things that like really helps me in these little experiments that I do. And I now do it so often that I actually, it's become, it's become a habit of me. Mm. And so I rec- recap and figure things out. And now I actually am, I go back to my, uh, my Evernote and I highlight and tag certain ideas that actually really come to fruition. And I'm like, oh, maybe I should get, I got to write more on that. Actually, that's another thing. I'm trying to like little experiments is like blogging and stuff. I'm like, I really need to do this more often. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. 
And so these are like these ideas that which like, oh, these are little experiments that I do. These are some of the things that I, uh, I help myself. And running was another thing that actually helped me through this is uh, I used to start to build up a lot of stress and anxiety and I didn't know how to appropriately release it. And so I used to release it in very ugly ways. And like I would like, let's go binge drink tonight with friends or like let's let's scream at somebody or let's kick the trash can down. It's very destructive manner ways. But all of the work and uh, realization within the health industry and understanding that exercise is so phenomenal for that. And when you get into a zone, you get to think, which um, we know in Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, who is a, uh, and also another psychologist who studies this idea of flow or what athletes call the zone. Sure. And that zone, you just, and it's such a stress reliever. And so I'll go running for like a uh, a five mile run, and it's just like one of the most r- relaxing things that I could do. And your your energy level is up, your endorphin uh, your endorphins are a lot higher. You feel so much more accomplished, and just just naturally a lot a lot more healthier for you. I mean, you're a cyclist. You you know that like feeling when you're like, oh, I, I have to do it. I got to do it because it's the itch. It's uh, yes. Yeah. It's so much more relieving. Well, you know, actually, um, you know, I have several years of running in my background. And now that I'm traveling, I can't bring a bike everywhere I go. So I just bring the running shoes. And I find that when I can run down a gravel road and you get that that sound of running, that for, you know, minutes on end, and it sort of puts you in the zone and it's, it's actually my favorite type of meditating, I think, is just running and just hearing the sound of running. <laughs> that funny is that awesome. <laughs> that is awesome. So yeah, I totally get man. where you're totally get where you're coming from on that. And yeah. it sets your nice little cadence and you like you and it, it creates that nice little euphoria. You know what I found out that also made me just sort of say, whoa, was that I think it's the, the cadence of most rock music is the same as the cadence of going running. And so it's like the natural human tendency for running is being played out in music. And it just blew my mind. Yes. Yes. Oh, that is so true. And like when you feel it, and then, and then the the ebbs and flows of the uh, of the beats. Yeah, and you're like, and then especially during times when you just naturally go through those crescendos, you're like, oh, you're so pumped, you're so so pumped. Oh, and that actually just reminded me um, the that natural tendencies of of music. So I have one of my. Uh, best friends he is uh he's an entertainment lawyer and so he actually manages uh, uh musicians and artists and a number of years ago i used to be so stressed because i would manage a lot of researchers and scientists but then like i would i would create i would create all these management operations and processes it's kind of like that one kid that nicely lines up the dominoes <laughs> nerd and then you have yeah you have the one kid that comes by and you're like i don't want it this way and then they move it and then just messes up everything yes. it used to drive me nuts and so i'm like i would this is where my ocd came in and i'm like i can't organize things because they keep create uh, they keep messing things up and i would create all these boundaries and more boundaries and then it was just more signs and it's just and then they would rebel and they just would hate me. And I hated them hating me because I was really <laughs> trying to help them. Anyway, going back to my, my, uh, my best friend who's uh, the lawyer, he came, he was like, uh, we were at some big, huge, hoity-toity Hollywood party. And, he was, and I was just so fraught with anxiety about uh, managing scientists. And he goes, you know what your problem is, Damien? I'm like, what? You're trying to, you're trying, these scientists are just like artists. They're independent. They don't care about your management processes. 
He says, it's your problem is that you think that you're going to manage them. He says, what you need to do is change the environment. He says, you create things that makes them easier. If they go one way, then you change that way. It's a lot easier for you. Hmm. And he says, that's, he goes, these artists, he goes, they are going to do whatever they're, that is actually who they are. You're trying to make them something who they're not. So you're, you got to look at it a different way and say, hey, all right, this is just a new challenge. Let's do, move it this way. If they want to go that way, you go that way. Because to be honest, he goes, he, uh, he says, to be honest with you, Damien, you need them more than they need you because they're getting paid for their science. They're not getting paid for their business. I was like, ugh. <laughs> that's I'm like, damn. That's great. That's really good. That's really good advice. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. And so Profound. that's and I think that's when it comes down to like scientists, real good scientists and inventors, they're they're artists in their own right minds. I love it. Scientists as artists. I think that's a perfect um, that's a perfect note to to wrap up on. And just one last question for you about where Absolutely. where can people find you online and find out about what you're doing? Yeah, so I'm at experimental-designs.com or you can just do a Google search of Damien Wilpitz. I'm everywhere. And, uh, or Damien Wilpitz at experimental-designs.com and I'm more than willing to help anybody out there that's uh, wanting to or managing to make science easier. Awesome. Thank you, Damien. That was a really fun show we we basically went all the way around science and consulting and you know of course you and i are geeking out a little bit talking about Jurassic park and, <laughs> and all this stuff but i had a i had a great time and and you had some great stories and you know especially like like that last one is some really good insights so some really valuable no, thank stuff you in there. So very much, Derek. This has been amazing. And like I remember when we first met and we were like both in this marketing and you I was, I was like, oh my God, I got super excited. Another scientist. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the instant the instant bond over some weird little thing that we do. <laughs> so thank you so very much, Derek. Well, uh yeah, my pleasure. And uh we will talk again soon, I'm sure. Absolutely. And you have a good day. All right, you too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks, Derek, for the chat. I hope that you got to know a little bit more about me and my passions. Don't be shy. Reach out to me if you'd like to chat about your own scientific passions. It'd be great to hear about your adventures. If you'd like to know more about Derek and his adventures, please go check out our show notes, and you'll see a link to all of his great entrepreneurial work and information at www.leadinglifescience.org forward slash podcast forward slash episode 7. Thank you for listening to the Leading Life Science Radio Podcast. We'd love to hear from you, the listeners, so please leave a comment or suggestions about questions you'd like to hear from our guests that could help you on your journey. If you like this episode, please subscribe, then go to iTunes, leave a five-star rating, and share it with someone that you know in the life sciences. Also, please let us know what leaders in science inspire you to pursue a career in the life sciences. Till the next time, happy sciencing. I'm your host, Damian Wilpitz of the Leading Life Science Radio Podcast. Thank you.